Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. Hello, everyone. Uh, just before we get underway, we use two acronyms in the podcast. The first is IRA, which stands for the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRA was passed into US law in August 2022 by President Joe Biden. It contains $500 billion in new spending and tax breaks that aim to boost clean energy, reduce healthcare costs and increase tax revenues. We also use the acronym SPR, which stands for Strategic Petroleum Reserve. SPR is the world's largest supply of emergency crude oil. It was established primarily to reduce the impact of disruptions in supplies of petroleum products and to carry out obligations of the US under the International Energy Programme. Anyway, enough of the admin. John Mensak will again be your host for today, along with fund managers Jim Luke and Malcolm Melville. Their previous podcast about commodities in the age of the 3D reset, the 3Ds being decarbonisation, deglobalization, and demographics, was out last week, so please give that a listen. We'll add a link in the show notes. Today, they're going to focus specifically on the impact of deglobalization and the role commodities will play in investors' portfolios in the new world. You'll hear first from John, followed by Jim, and then Malcolm. Anyway, on with the show. So this is a topic we've spent a lot of time talking about internally. And what we're going to ask the listener to do is to uh, set aside the capital markets for a moment, all the things that you necessarily uh, worry about on a daily basis, valuation, liquidity, uh, all of those things, and pull back your focus to world events and uh, consider more broadly what's what's going on. Uh, certainly covid uh, rising tensions between the U.S. and China and the war in Ukraine have had many nations and then uh, obviously companies reconsidering their supply chains and strategic partners. We're going to speak today about uh, the potential to use commodities as a hedge, as a geopolitical hedge in your portfolio. But before we get to that, let's go back and start at the beginning. And and globalization, uh, that whole term and, and the uh, – the rapidity of it really started to ramp up in earnest when China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001. So, Jim, Malcolm, l- let's take a look back at globalization and see, you know, just ask, what did it give us? When I think of that that true strong globalizing period, particularly the 1990s and the 2000s, uh, I think of both the macroeconomic impacts as, as well as the, the geopolitical backdrop, which was really the Washington consensus and a unipolar world uh, effectively, let's be honest, policed um, by the United States. So I think from my perspective, actually my biggest, um, what really made a big impression on me uh, in terms of background reading was, was this notion that between say 1980 uh, and 2010 in a globalizing marketplace, you saw close to a, a, a threefold uh, increase in the global working age population that could be accessed by a, you know, a, a footloose or a, a cost optimizing uh, manufacturer. So, so the working age population uh, went from about 700 million people uh, in 1980 all the way up to, to 2 billion people uh, by 2010 via, as you mentioned, the accession of, 
of China into the WTO in 2001. But also, let's not forget the, the expansion of the EU uh, into the in, in, in the post-Soviet period and in, into the Eastern Bloc, a huge source of labour supply in, in, into the broad uh, developed economies of Europe, as well as the as well as increased role of of India and and, and the Indian sort of subcontinent. I mean, and this, I mean, I think that's what's really interesting about this is that, you know, one of the questions we get a lot is, well, you know, how do we really think, why do we really think that inflation uh, is going to be uh, uh, bullish for commodities? And I think what the globalization period shows us is that actually that's a period where you have an exception that probably proves the rule, uh, because that is one of the periods, particularly in the early 2000s, where you saw very, very strong increases uh, in commodity prices, but actually developed market inflation our headline inflation was still rather tame. But, but really, what was really happening uh, structurally behind the scenes in terms of labor supply was probably, from my perspective, a completely unrepeatable and historically unprecedented increase in, in the global labor supply, which was you know, significantly suppressing uh, labor in, in, in the lower deciles of the, of, the, of the income spectrum. That's what my takeaways are, Mark. Yeah, I, th- I think for me, one of the key tenets of globalization and it's a phrase you don't hear so much discussed now, it was just-in-time delivery. The yeah. focus globally on all corporations was where we can, can we produce on a global basis at the lowest possible cost. Security of supply was not a consideration. It was a minor consideration. And I think the disinflationary impact of that just-in-time delivery, finding the cheapest place anywhere in the world to produce your goods, not really considering that security of supply, is was was absolutely key to globalization and clearly the world has changed now and that is 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 under threat and now security of supply probably ranks alongside cost as a kind of primary driver for when companies are thinking about their production cycles yeah you had some crazy stories of uh the efficiency right where you would have a a seat belt for a car which was cut to order in mexico and shipped up or, or and died in Mexico, shipped up to Canada to be stitched and then brought back into the United States to be installed in the car. So uh, all of those things uh, came our way, low prices and uh, probably for all of us, uh, a, a lot more being a lot more sanguine, getting closer to major holidays for people and buying gifts and uh, waiting till 72 hours out to make the decision. But things are changing. I guess one of the downsides we had, though, uh, on uh, globalization, certainly in the U.S., we saw it here, were fewer union jobs as, as some of those shop jobs were shipped overseas. Yeah, I think that's right. If you if you look at, at the BLS data on um, union union membership in in the, the U.S., you went from in the 60s it averaged 35 percent to the 19 to 2020s, it was down to 10 percent. So you had a very big change in the structure of labor markets, particularly particularly in the U.S. But I would say, and if I change tack slightly here, John, that there were some challenges to to globalization uh, and two kind of key vulnerabilities, which I think have been exposed. One is the the lack of diversification in supply. And the second probably would be the the exposure to globalization where where you get those stress points is where those relationships with your supplier has been weak. And on, on the diversification element, I think that was really highlighted most vividly in Europe, where all the supply of energy, you go to your cheapest supplier because that's what you do. That's your primary motivation was price. It wasn't security of supply. And Europe found in itself 
very tied up with Russia for in terms of its energy needs. And the end result was huge spikes in gas prices globally, but particularly centered, centered in Europe. And then that, that relationship, that key relationships, I think the, the one area that makes me think of is, is the US-China axe, where that relationship kind of waxes and wanes over time. And if you're very reliant on one area for supply, maybe it's chips or whatever it might be, then as those, as those relationships change through time, if that relationship isn't solid, then that adds stress. So the, the globalization theme that clearly delivered those lower prices and that era of lower inflation did have its vulnerabilities, which have been, 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 I think, exposed over the last few years. And given COVID and, of course, the, the other geopolitical challenges, we've started to see a lot of countries um, you know, bring try to bring back uh, production of critical materials, uh, or critical products, I should say, to either nearshoring or friendshoring or uh, internally and uh, fiscal, uh, fiscal measures uh, to be able to make that happen. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. So flash forward to today, and uh, our argument is that we're living through the most significant uh, geopolitical realignment since the fall of the Berlin Wall, and before that, probably the end of World War II. So the first thing that you can tease out of that comment, uh, Jim and Malcolm, is that these realignments tend to go for decades. So we're just in the beginning of all of this. And Jim, picking up on your theme of moving from that unipolar uh, dominant to more of a multipolar rising environment. Let's break down uh, the three poles as we see them right now. And we'll start with the Western powers, obviously the US, uh, Western Europe, Australia. Uh, what do they want? You know, wh What are they trying to achieve here uh, in this world? I, th I think from a US perspective, clearly they want to uh, retain their primacy within traditional spheres of influence, which let's be honest, includes uh, Asia Pacific. I, I, I think more broadly, uh, as, as we actually discussed on the last podcast, uh, I think governments uh, in Europe and governments uh, in North America uh, in particular, and maybe in, including uh, Australasia, um, will be thinking very, very hard uh, about the security of supply chains. Uh, I think if the broad assumption is that the direction of travel in US-Chinese uh, relations is not great, uh, and, and let's hope we're wrong on that, but, but, but that does seem to be the direction of travel, um, then given the reliance um, for some you know, critical industries uh, on, on Chinese supply, and that goes down to renewables, but also in terms of critical minerals and refined production, uh, then there then needs to be uh, much more attention paid uh, to, supply, to supply chain security uh, in those areas, which, which you know, to an extent we're already seeing, but you would have to argue uh, that there's a lot more to go. For example, you know, when I speak to uh, consultants who work in, in the metals industries on specific areas, um, they will say in private that they think the IRA uh, in the US is, is, is pretty much toothless uh, in terms of its ability to really reshape uh, reshape global supply chains as, as it currently stands. Um, but that's something we can probably talk about a, a bit more. But there is seriously uh, a lot of potential uh, for, for, for disruption, I think. Okay, and on the other end of that rope, that tug-of-war rope, we've got the, the much-strengthened relationship with China-Russia. 
that sort of uh, friendship without limits, uh, also a marriage of convenience. What do they seek to get from each other uh, in this new world? Yeah, that's it's. Uh, what does Russia really want going forward? It's very difficult to say, but there's clearly mutual benefits to both of them, to being, um, to having closer cooperation. Russia, key energy supplier, producing 10% of the world's oil at the moment and producing ever increasing amounts of gas um, and has direct pipeline access to China. China, forever energy hungry and the, the possibility of getting cheaper energy, Russian oil trades at a $25, $30 discount to international prices. So if China can secure cheap energy from Russia, uh, that clearly is going to help suppress inflation and help their economic growth. So I think it is very much a, a, mani- a, a marriage of convenience. And I think that this, the other element is that because of Russia's actions in Ukraine and the international reaction to that, Russia has been very much forced into a position where it needs to seek allies wherever it can. And in China, it has it has a partner who, as I say, is desperate for that cheap energy and therefore really fostering relations there for Russia has to be on a geopolitical stage, has to be one of the key one of the key elements. And I think you could probably add some elements of OPEC into that relationship as well. Um, Saudi Arabia and the Middle East clearly need and to maintain their strong relationship with the US. But as we discussed in the previous podcast, those, those ties in the petrodollar system is probably weakening. And they too also see the strategic benefits of building those partnerships with, with China. And that cooperation with Russia in the OPEC plus framework maintains is continues to be very strong uh, and resilient. And to make things even a little bit more difficult, it's it's not a two-dimensional world, it's a three-dimensional world. And we have a, a block of countries now called the Global South, uh, which are sort of the Southern Asia, uh, some in the Middle East, LATAM, uh, very resource-rich uh, countries. They're, they understand this is their moment, do they not, uh, with respect to the, the major change it's going to – the major uh, spend, I'm sorry, that's going to come on climate change transition. Uh, this is their moment, and they're going to flex their muscles, are they not? Well, it certainly puts them in a very strong position, doesn't it, between, between the competing power blocks of the U.S., potentially Europe, and then Russia, China. So in terms of the ability to um, you know, benefit from the needs – uh, for resources, particularly if you look at parts of Africa uh, and then obviously Latin America, you would think they'll be doing everything to, to, to maximize um, their own um, benefits. But it also, it does put you know, certain parts of that, 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 that bucket into very difficult positions uh, between the US and China. So to the extent that yeah. some of those regions may ultimately be forced to choose um, which block they align themselves to. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see the extent to which um, you, know, you, you can actually play both sides off against each other or whether there's more tension that comes from that. Yeah, yeah. I think if you, if you were to highlight one big winner in that, in that, in that the global south, it would probably have to be some of the Latin countries, uh, countries, some of the Latin countries, particularly Brazil, where their production of agricultural commodities, they will be 
or are the number one producer now of soybeans. They produce huge amounts of wheat. Um, they produce huge amounts of corn, uh, sugar, livestock. So really, they are in a in a absolutely uh, key position going forward. What do you? Yeah, think, be- You've covered these you've covered these regions for years. What, what, what's what's your take? These are obviously very fluid dynamics that that are yet to fully form. It, it is fluid. You know, the other thing I was going to say, Jim, is that. Um, what do the what do the global South need? They need the machinery to be the most efficient at at you know uh, producing these crops and the, and these metals and so forth. So they need China and the U.S. as well. So this dynamic can change uh, where they have they're in a position of power at one moment and then they're in a position where uh, you know it'll be interesting to see if there are any incentives that are offered by China and the U.S. to provide machinery. At, at you know rates that are what you would say below market, if you will, in order to curry favor uh, with those countries. So we, we get asked a lot about, uh, you know, is globalization dead? I mean, globalization is it's not dead, but it just seems to me, uh, Malcolm Jim, that the, the players now are coming with distinct uniforms and, and they're going to uh, act. They're going to be rational economic actors. Yeah, I think that's right. We see it in a number of different sectors, probably most uh most clearly in the agricultural sector, where countries are quick to impose tariffs or export restrictions, uh, whether it be Australia and Bali or Argentina on wheat or palm oil from Indonesia, agriculture does seem to be the sector that is most susceptible to that. Um, And I don't think that's going to change going forward because the government's primary responsibility is always going to be to look after its domestic population. So ensuring food security is absolutely number one priority and that can have significant implications for agricultural prices at times if you have poor harvests or increases in demand or shifting shifting eating habits as you're seeing in, in many parts of china, uh, asia and particularly in china so for me i i think the the most prominent uh, story that we've seen so far and and by the way so much of this has happened just in the last 18 months where the tectonic plates are shifting but you you go back to the the tanks rolling into ukraine in february of uh, uh february of last year 2022 in april 3200 miles away in mumbai india uh prime minister modi uh, famously declared india will feed the world because they had a phenomenal wheat harvest in a, a in a La Nina year, as one would expect with a great monsoon season, and then four weeks later, uh, there was a, a subsequent pronouncement from Mumbai, India. This time in the form of a press release, and it just simply stated that uh, India was instituting a near total ban, export ban on wheat. Um, is this the new normal in terms of you know just plug in commodity name? Uh, are we to expect much more of this going forward? Yeah, I think you should, John. I think it's, it's food security, commodity security, uh, whether it would be for for the energy transition or whether it be agricultural products to depress inflation is going to be absolutely key. And and it, it's front and center now. I think when you have when you have higher inflation, inflation is is coming down. But when you have higher inflation and pressure on governments, high, high inflation and high food prices and high commodity prices can be very detrimental. You saw that the reaction in the US uh, when they tapped the SPR, um, I think, as a direct result of, of that spike in gasoline prices we see. So it can force, it can, it can be very costly for governments and governments will do all they can 
whether it be export bans or tax relief or tapping reserves, to to try and cushion those impacts on on the population and on the economy. And I suppose we should also mention it's not certainly not just ag, but if you look at you know the Chips and Science Act in the United States, um, you know blocking China from sophisticated technology and and with a clawback provision where if uh, a partner company uh, takes advantage of the Chips and Science Act, they're banned for 10 years from really expanding materially uh, in China. So it, it just seems like the the lines are being drawn here. And, um, it, you know, both companies and countries are, are going to have a, a delicate minuet to kind of dance uh, between the raindrops, if you will, to to mix my metaphors, the the book on commodities has been certainly uh, they they tend to work as a inflationary hedge, and they're some they're a they're a asset class you should look at in a time of elevated inflation, and certainly with uh, uh, an ameliorating dollar. But these events that we're talking about, with supply chain disruptions, hoarding, uh, food hoarding, and and critical supply hoarding, they're going to transpire randomly and really be impossible to predict going forward. Is that correct? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's the the absolute key to what you're saying. I, I don't think there's an explicit forecastability about any geopolitical shock. I think it's a question of asking: Is the probability of a geopolitical yeah. shock, of a supply disruption, uh, of some kind of supply chain rupture, higher, given the stresses that we're seeing? Um, between, say, the US and China, uh, and more broadly in terms of this global bifurcation, um, which you, or trifurcation, um, which, which which you described. I think it's kind of analogous to what we were discussing in the last podcast about the broad macroeconomic background, which is also similar to the extent that the forecastability of particular breaking points or particular stress points uh, in the financial system uh, or in risk markets is 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 ultimately unforecastable. But can you say that the potential, the probability of that kind of rupture has increased because of some of the stresses, the fiscal stresses, the debt stresses that we talked about? But that 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 probability is higher. I think you can, and I, I think that it's a, exactly the same point for geopolitics. And you know, John, when we go back uh, and look at the performance of commodities, say relative to equities, you know, it's it's very very clear on that chart that the periods when commodities outperform by you know hundreds of percent. Uh, having having in many cases been um, around geopolitical events, particularly disruptions to Middle Eastern oil supply. So past events, you know, the proxy wars, the embargoes are typically centered on, you know, ideology. And of course, oil uh, was at the center of everything. And gold was the common hedge. But it just seems now that the potential list of items in, in scope for uh, the, this fabric fraying and, and conflict is actually quite large, given uh, the the major spend on metals uh, occurring with climate transition right now. Yeah, I th- I think that's fair. Um, I think the idea, if you, if you define a strategic commodity as anything that is essential essential to the the smooth functioning uh, of the economy, um, then you 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 can broaden the you know the definition of of of, of potential. Um, you know, commodity beneficiaries of this kind of stress, you know, much, much wider than just the gold market from from, from metals uh, into ags. And obviously energy security is, is just absolutely vital given given how large energy markets are relative to GDP and how large they are relative to other commodity subsectors. 
get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website, shorters.com forward slash the investor download. With, with all this inherent instability, this uh, uncertainty, um, it, it just seems to us that uh, what had been a tactical trade of commodities now probably seems to have uh, make a decent case for a structural element in a portfolio for uh, maybe perhaps at least the next decade. Is it, how do you feel about that? I think that's right, John, because if you, if you, the starting point also is, is important here. So if you think about a typical portfolio, and it's, 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 I'm not sure what you would say a typical portfolio is really, because every investor clearly has their own, their own needs and wants and, and, and requirements within a portfolio. But I would say on average, an allocation to commodities uh, is low, and that's driven past three, four years have been very good for commodities. But prior to that, that was a very savage 10-year bear market for commodities and commodities for an asset class. I would say during that 10-year bear market generally fell out of favor. There was many more exciting assets for people to own. Therefore, the starting point for allocation to commodities or a structural allocation to commodities is very low. We have seen investors periodically over the last three, four years allocate to commodities, but that's very much been a tactical allocation. There hasn't been many people who have said, okay, we really want to take that 5, 10, 15-year view of these structural changes going on in the, in the geopolitical landscape, and we need to have a structural allocation to commodities. So if your starting point is your allocation to commodities is either zero or very low, then reflect and you believe in these risks, then having some small allocation, 2, 3, 4, 5%, whatever it is, depending on whatever suits the portfolio, but having an allocation to a commodity sector that gives you might give you that protection against some of these geopolitical risks kind of makes sense. If the starting point was that most portfolios had 20, 25% in commodities, then it'd be a bit different, very different case. But that yeah. just isn't the case. The case is that most portfolios really have none or a very low commodity exposure as your starting point. It'll be interesting too, to, you almost wish you could go forward and peek back 10 years and, and see, you know, this cyclicality in um, and, and the tactical nature of commodities, some of that may get ironed out because of what's happening. Uh, and as we said before, these events are going to be unpredictable. They're going to occur whether there's a you're in a strong dollar regime or a weak dollar regime, uh, heightened inflation or a disinflationary period. Um, but it, it, it just seems that uh, to not have an allocation in, in commodities structurally, you're sort of betting on um, going back to a world which is much smoother, uh, where uh, climate change spend is uh, de-emphasized, and that just does not look to be the direction of travel in the world these days. I think that's that's. I think that's a really sensible way to think about it, because because ultimately that is that as we were talked about probabilities. So the question is for any investor, what kind of world with what kind of priorities? Uh, and what kind of strategic tensions uh, do we think we're going into? Uh, and if it's one where priorities remain around climate mitigation, strategic tensions are high in building, uh, then I think the case for, for having an allocation to commodities is, 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 is clearly enhanced. And I just want to make sure the listener understands we're not, when we look at all of this, we're not explicitly stating that 
the dollar is going to fall off the table or lose all of its influence, that the U.S. is going to lose all of its influence, uh, or that inflation is going to run very, very hot. Uh, but none of those things have to be true for the commodities argument uh, to make sense. These changes, they, they take time. They're kind of glacial. Yeah. But it comes back to, I think, what we touched upon in the first podcast. We've had this era for the last 30 years prior to this inflation scare, where inflation was broadly on an average global basis, two, two and a half percent on the global basis for 30 years. The 30 years prior to that, inflation was structurally much higher. And now we've had a 30-year period where it's low. And if we were, we're moving into a, a, um, a more risk, a riskier environment, more geopolitical tensions and higher inflation environment, then that is, that is different. These things don't change and you don't flick a switch. We talked in the last podcast about the, 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 the petrodollar uh, regime and how that's changing. Those things, they're very slow-moving beasts. We're not going to suddenly see Saudi Arabia suddenly say, we don't want a relationship with the U.S. We're not going to we're not going to be pricing um, oil in dollars. That, that those things don't happen overnight. But over the next five, ten years, is that regime likely to change? Yeah, absolutely. And that probably those those small changes, which you kind of sometimes you don't even see on a on a week to week or a month to month basis. But when you look back in the fullness of time, you suddenly realize actually we're in a, we are in a slightly different place than where we were a few yeah. years ago. Exactly right. And it's a different for, for an investor in the West. It's just a different feeling. And uh, yeah. we'll probably get more and more reminders of that uh, as we go forward geopolitically and just uh, who's selling what to whom and at what price. OK, so we're going to leave it there then for this podcast. Uh, commodities is a geopolitical hedge. This was a great discussion. Malcolm, Jim, really appreciate it and uh, love having your insights. And I'm sure we'll do a check-in on this particular podcast as we go forward. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much. We hope it was time well spent for you, and uh, we look forward to speaking with you on a future podcast. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. 